welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Jeremy Lewis, PhD. Jeremy is a powerhouse researcher and clinician based in London, England. Jeremy has hundreds of academic publications to his name, covering an array of topics from frozen shoulder to shared decision-making to shoulder impingement to behavior change. Personally, Jeremy is a friend and mentor and is someone whose views I respect immensely. I have invited Jeremy onto the podcast to chat specifically about frozen shoulder. Frozen shoulder is a famously mysterious condition that apparently evades scientific inquiry. I think this is actually a touch dramatic. Jeremy and I talk about the ins and outs of frozen shoulder, what it is, how to detect it, and the evidence base around how to treat it. This conversation was actually originally recorded in November 2020 for my YouTube show, On the Shoulders of Giants. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Jeremy Lewis. Jeremy, welcome. Hey, how are you? Nice to meet you again. Nice yeah, to you spend too. some time with you. <laughs> That's good. So we've, we've known each other for a little bit. We've been collaborating, writing together. I'm lucky to have you as one of my PhD supervisors. Um, we've, never, we've, we've never really discussed frozen shoulder in depth, although we have written something uh, together. And I'm really interested to get your thoughts on it. You're, a, you're an industry leader. Yeah, you've published extensively in the area of frozen shoulder, rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, subacromial impingement, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You've got, I think I saw on your ResearchGate profile, you've got over 100 publications to your name. So I'm, uh, I'm in awe of your, of your productivity. How do you do it? That's, that's very kind of you. Um, I'd like to say it's a few more now, but I, I'm, I, uh, I haven't been on ResearchGate for a while. But, um, oh, there you go. Yeah, but it's not the quantity, it's the quality. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll, I'll say this, and I just, you've been a huge influence on me personally in, in my career. I, I read your paper, The Subacromial Impingement, is it an illusion or I can't remember the exact title, um, nearly 10 years ago. And it made me question everything in physiotherapy because that, that subacromial impingement for me was a non-negotiable, easy <laughs> diagnosis, easy treatment, centralize the humeral head and you're on your way. But, uh, but you ruined that for me. And here we are nearly a decade later and we're still trying to piece it together. So thanks for that. I'm quite unsure. Am I supposed to apologize now or <laughs> celebrate? I don't know. Both, both. Okay, fine. Yeah, now that was an interesting time, actually. I, I remember I was very nervous about, I was really excited about writing it. And, and, and when it came out, I got a little bit of, are you sure you know what you're talking about? And I then started getting a lot of flack from, from physios and, um, and, and from surgeons. And, and it wasn't comforting, I don't know if that's the right word, um, but it was, it was, it was interesting to see over the period of time since that was published, the number of studies that really do suggest that the acromion isn't impinging. Um, like discs don't slip, the acromions don't impinge. And 
that would be a fantastic chorus to a song that maybe we could write at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't help you. I'm not, I'm not going to sing, Jeremy, to save everyone, but um, I do yeah. like it. It does have a ring to it. Or, or even, if, even if Acromians do impinge, they impinge in everybody or, or most of yeah. society anyway. So it's well, they touch them. They don't impinge because impinge mm. is negative. Mm. And, and I, I would say they touch and touch is a good thing. You mm. know, we, you know, so, so I, I, I think they touch. Good. I, I agree. And so that, that was, uh, that was a really, that was a really uh, interesting time in my life as well. So, so thanks. So thank you for that. And I can speak for a lot of other people as well. And it's a, I, we really value the, the work that you do. So keep it up. Thank you. Okay. Enough of the compliments. A lot of what I'm doing is the devil's work for a lot of people, but, but uh, yeah, thank you. That's a nice, it's nice to start. This. It's, if you don't, it's morning, it's morning here in London and it's nice to start the day with, um, with a nice, nice, nice conversation. Thank you. Well, the, the, the civilities end now, Jeremy, I'm going to, we're going to get into the, we're going to get into the, the, the hard stuff. Well, firstly, actually, oh, my, my broadband looks like it's, it's about to cutting out. out. <laughs> um, well, firstly, can you just talk, tell us a bit about you and your history, Jeremy? So I know you're, you're a Kiwi, uh, trained in Australia, I believe, and you've made your home in, in London now for, for several years or decades. So, so what's decades, yeah. in, in a few minutes, uh, sort of, what's been your, your story? Uh, well, just as the wheel was being invented, I was born <laughs> in New Zealand. Um, I roamed the plains of New Zealand uh, fighting off brontosauri. Um, as we were talking about before this, I did you know, my 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 uh, junior school in New Zealand. Um, I had an absolutely privileged life in New Zealand, living by the beach and um, driving tractors at I think age nine by myself and taking yeah. boats out and net where were you down south up north? Uh, just just to the, the 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 west, the very south of the of the North Island, a place called Paraparaumu. Okay. Um, which is just outside of, uh, 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 in, in, in those days it was, I'd, we'd go to Wellington, my grandmother would take me to Wellington once a year for a Chinese meal and a new pair of shoes and it was a really big trip. Um, and, but now it's just sort of like a satellite outside Wellington. And then um, uh, economically New Zealand wasn't doing too well and my, my parents were economic migrants to Australia and, um, and so you know, that's how I got to Australia and finished high school in Australia and, and went to physio school in Australia. And then 21 years ago, came to London because I wanted to see what it was like living in Europe and um, got a really fabulous job at a major London teaching hospital um, and, and loved living in Europe and, um, and have been here ever since. But come back to Australia once or twice a year uh, to teach and to uh, visit uh, my mum who lives in Melbourne and uh, and catch up with with friends so are you a are you a kiwi are you an aussie are you a pom you um, a if you keep this quiet and don't tell anybody i've got three passports um and what it means is i've become incredibly superficial so whoever's winning a particular sport <laughs> on the international stage i am that country um yeah so i become <laughs> Quite superficial, and it just depends what suits me and what visas. Are good. It's made, it's made travelling around the world very simple for me. I bet yeah. that's a good way so, to go. Actually, in the UK, I've I've been really privileged. I came at a time when um, there was huge waiting lists uh, to see orthopaedic surgeons. So the government uh, at that stage was really, um, I think, quite progressive, and so was opening up 
the possibility for physios learning to do injections and then uh, physios learning to refer patients for blood tests and uh, all sorts of imaging and and then manage to get onto a, a, a postgraduate diploma and um, uh, ultrasound. So the idea was to incorporate imaging in clinics so you could offer a one-stop shop, uh, but it also allowed me to do ultrasound-guided injections. It also, also the deregulated prescribing. So in 2015, I did the independent prescribing course, um, which allows me to prescribe medicines that are relevant for patients. Um, unfortunately, not allowed to prescribe Botox. So this is all real. It's L'Oreal because I'm worth it. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so there are some restrictions, but it's been a really interesting evolution of the, the profession in this country. Where'd you do your PhD? Uh, I started it was initially in Melbourne, but I moved it to Coventry University. And I had just the very, very best um, PhD supervisor, Anne Green, uh, one of the nicest, self, most selfless people I've ever met in my entire life. And she's just just retired, sadly. And um, yeah, it was that was such a, a wonderful experience. Um, such a great learning. Lonely, as you'll find with your PhD. Um, it can be a very lonely time, but also very um, inspirational time as well um mm -hmm. yeah and especially if the team around you is a supportive team now mm -hmm. at this point in time you say and you're such a supportive supervisor jeremy <laughs> could, could you not see my 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 vigorous <laughs> nodding no didn't come through yeah. Yeah. absolutely no you are you have been a tremendous help thank you for that as have my other supervisors so shout out to them uh okay so so what, what's a typical week looking like for you now so i guess it's the pandemic um, what, what's your what's your work week? Are you are you sort of working university based? Are you working clinically? What are you doing? So it's been a an amazing year in some ways, a very positive year in some ways, but also incredibly sad year. I've lost family members to COVID, and I uh, had the virus myself. My daughter, who my youngest daughter, who uh, is a junior doctor, um, sadly had it as well, um, uh, and. Um, yeah, so it's been a humbling year. Um, it's been a year of reflection. But from a professional point of view, I work a couple of days a week uh, as a professor of musculoskeletal research. I've got positions in a couple of universities in different countries. Um, but all that's gone on to Zoom and emails, etc. And uh, in the National Health Service where I work, um, initially it was... Um, telehealth so you would go to work well, some people were working from home but I, I just couldn't do any more work from home so i go to the um uh hospital community hospital that i work in um and and just speak to people on uh on by the telephone or they have a system like zoom called blue jeans uh where you could uh which is apparently more secure or something um but zoom's great i don't want anyone from zoom to come and get us um and um and just recently Last month, we were allowed to see patients face to face again. So, uh, yesterday uh, was a, my frozen shoulder clinic day, and um, uh, saw patients uh, face to face. Gave a couple of injections, um, and most of it was normal physio rehab for frozen shoulders and advice and education. Um, and then my reflective moment on the way home on my bicycle on the way home, uh, thinking, have I done any good? So. Awesome. Yeah. So, so yeah. So so it's a mixture of it's a lot of like everybody, I guess, like you for sure as well. Um, a lot of it is learning to adapt to this 
new normal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, we've been less affected down under, but although we have had a, a few issues um, in Victoria, sadly, and then also we've got a bit of an outbreak in South Australia. But anyway, we're all on high alert. I saw that yesterday in the news that South Australia, and I know my mum, she's quite elderly now, and I mean, this has been a hard year for her. She's spent most of this year talking to magpies in her garden and yeah it's, yeah and so it's been a hard year but now i think the lot she, for what she's saying she's she's been out in the last week or so she's finally gone to a nursery and you know mm. and and then starting to enjoy life again but you sort yeah. of think that island nations should be doing well i mean mm. new zealand's done extremely well australia relatively has done very well uk island nation but not so well yeah, we won't we won't venture into that uh, political conversation. But I can. Uh, it's after, anyway after, after a couple of vodkas, we should. <laughs> yeah, that's offline, offline. Okay, so okay, okay we'll, we'll leave we'll leave the heavier topics, and we're going to get into an interesting. Uh, I have a question for you. It's state of origin night here in Australia. It's Come Queensland on, New versus Wales. New South Wales. Come on, New South Wales. Okay, well, all right. Being a passionate Queenslander. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you an email at midnight tonight when we win because it's game three and it's one one game all so this is the decider and um, yeah. I wish I had my New South Wales um you are in game. blue so that's um ominous anyway okay yeah. we're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna get into frozen shoulder Jeremy now I'm gonna start with a quote from the famous Ernest Cogman frozen shoulder is difficult to treat difficult to define and difficult to explain and he uttered those words in 1934. We are in 2020 right now. Are we any better? Are we any better off? Do we understand it at a deeper level? What are your thoughts? Um, no, <laughs> probably, probably not a whole lot better, but um, I, I love medical history and I, I don't know if you've had a chance to actually read his book. You can read it online, um, The Shoulder Doc, website i believe has got it all available online which is a fantastic a fantastic resource that they've uh, uh, provided for people and i thank them for that and it's really interesting when you read his book isn't it you know that he based a lot of what he's saying on the assessment of four people in 1933 where he hospitalized them tied them into elevation for 20 hours plus a day which must have been absolute torture um they're allowed up an hour a day or so to do the famous Codman pendular exercises. And surprisingly, after a week or two weeks, they said, don't need any more treatment. I'm going home. Things are great. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then you get this comments that and everyone gets better based on four people, you know, and, you know, the, 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 the history of frozen shoulder was punctuated by small observational studies uh, where too much has been generated, too much uh, un unquestioned thought has been generated from from those small observations, and um, it's an interesting history. How you know, if you look at Codman's four subject four participants in '33, and then you know we had the never see a um, study uh, in the 1940s that observed ten people and said no, it's not a frozen shoulder, it's an adhesive capsulitis, and those two. The two, the two description of the two conditions isn't the same. A frozen shoulder isn't an adhesive capsulitis. Somewhere in the 1960s and 70s, they seem to merge somehow and they've become a synonym for each other. But 
they were absolutely not the same condition for, for most for most of the last century. Um, and that, that was based on 10 people. So who, who knows what's really going on? I, I certainly don't know what's going on. I'd be wary of anybody who knows. Yeah. So, so what do you, how, how do you, how do you define a frozen shoulder? If somebody asks you in clinic, Jeremy, why is my shoulder so sore? Can you, can you give me, what's your TED talk or what's your two sentence spiel on frozen shoulder to describe it in lay terms to a, to a patient? Okay. Um, that's, that's a really good, I like that question. Um, so for me, you know, after the, so, so I, I often, when a patient's yesterday, someone's come in, in the room, in the clinic, seeking care for this incredibly painful shoulder that's way out of proportion to anything that could have um, uh, precipitated it. You know, and you ask the question in the interview stage, you know, what's it like living with this? And, and, and five times out of 10, that's the time you've got to pass the patient um, in a physically yeah. distanced manner, um, the tissues, because they just break into tears that, um, that uh, you know, no one understands uh, work. The fir first few days, people were very kind and understanding, but then I started getting comments like, you haven't had a fracture, you haven't had surgery, and no one at home understands that it's agony for me to get dressed. Everything has to be done slowly. Attending to personal hygiene is, you know, like running a marathon now. Um, um, you know, and and so you know, once you've been through the interview stage and and, and you know, set the scene for the patient, we've, we've got an hour together or whatever it is. I'd like to talk to you about you know how this started and how it's been affecting you, and then with your permission, like to assess your shoulder. Once we've set up the assessment, um, with your permission to sit down and and talk to you about what I think's going on and the different management options, and together we can decide how best to move forwards. So at the, at the end of all that, um, I don't really have a test to say you have got frozen shoulder, but for me, the clinical cluster has to be the person is around 50 years of age, that physiological movements are actively and passively equally restricted. Um, one of those physiological movements has to be external rotation. Um, and if you, if you want to discuss that later on, we can. Um, uh, and the, that the external rotation has to be a limited active implacably at least 50% or more in comparison to the other side. Um, and more or less the x-ray is normal if I'm going to do an intervention. I need an x-ray because I'm a clinical coward. Um, and, um, and, and so I'd say to, to the individual, you know, try you know validate all their their pain and their, the difficulty uh, it's really important not to, to, you know, to do that with, with people and, um, and say so it's most likely you've got a frozen shoulder. Um, and then in my head, I don't like to stop just to at, a, at that umbrella term frozen shoulder. You know, you know, you've clearly got a, you know, the patient is sitting within the umbrella of a stiff and painful shoulder. And then there's so many stiff and painful shoulders and you've got to be a clinical detective to try and work out what it's likely to be. And often it's imaging with stiff shoulders that helps differentiate the frozen shoulder to the arthritic shoulder, to the osteonecrotic shoulder, to the, the poor individual who's got an osteosarcoma, to the lock dislocation shoulder. There's so many reasons to have a stiff shoulder that sort of looks similar in many ways 
So for me, imaging is quite important, especially if I'm going to do an intervention. So I'd say to the patient, I guess my 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 line is: it is like you've clearly got a stiff and painful shoulder, and it is like there's many different reasons for that. And what's likely is you've got a frozen shoulder, and here are the different management options that we could discuss and consider and work out what's the right way for you to move forwards. Cool. So, so certainly validate their experience, do some, some physical examination testing. You're looking at external rotation, obviously either in neutral or through range, I imagine. Um, I've been having some interesting ones lately where I see people come in with pretty good, not pretty good. It's in, they're okay in neutral external rotation. And then up at 90 degrees, have zero or sometimes negative, uh, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. So I see them coming to me, and I'm sure you've seen this for a second and a third opinion, and mm-hmm. they've, they've been diagnosed with bursitis based on an ultrasound scan. Yeah, it's a it's a raging frozen shoulder. Nobody's just thought to test it up up through range of motion because they're probably using their thoracic spine or, or something mm-hmm. else to to do the external rotation. Do you see much of that stuff like false positives or false negatives in your in your clinical practice? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I don't know what's going on here. It's such a, a lovely sunny day morning in London and I seem to be thrust into darkness. I don't know what's going on. Um, but uh, but um, anyway, yeah, so I, I totally agree with that. I think, um, you know, when people want to try and stay as normal as possible, they do exactly what you see. You couldn't have described it better. They, you know, they're, they're twisting on their hip to, to give the, the impression that the movement's the same. And uh, I published a paper in 2006 with Rachel Valentine. Um, and uh, we, we had a look at a, 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 some, some ways of measuring physiological movement of the shoulder, looking at some reliability. It was, it was a, an earlier study. And, um, and we came up with a suggestion to run a tape measure from your belly button um, to your ulnar styloid process to keep your arms loosely by your side, externally rotate. And it doesn't matter how much tricking you're doing. Um, so and we, it's a linear measurement. So the way that I would use it for quickly clinically is simply to say, okay, on, on the stiff side, it's 20 centimetres. On the other side, it's 40 centimetres. 20 on 40, uh, over 40 is a 50% reduction. So it's a super fast way to get a, because goniometry and visual is really difficult for me. Mm. Um, and so it doesn't matter how much tricking you're doing, you can't trick the tape measure. But mm. I totally agree with you that, you know, when you come up into higher range, and you can do exactly the same thing, um, it's probably more revealing. But a lot of patients in the early stage, you can't get them up into higher ranges. Um, Absolutely. Without the embarrassment of screaming coming out of your clinic. Yeah, it, it is such a, and I'm glad you touched on the, the emotional aspect or the mental load of frozen shoulder because it is, it's a condition, I'm, I'm probably with a really acute sciatica, it might be similar, um, mm-hmm. but a frozen shoulder. I've been reading a little bit of uh, some qualitative research around frozen shoulder and mm-hmm. there's not much out there, sadly, and embarrassingly. Well, there's, so. there's a joke study from, from exactly. 2012. Yeah. And keep an eye out for Will King. He's doing some stuff in um, down the south of England and also... Um, uh, 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 Christine Billsborough, Chris Billsborough, um, who's doing a PhD injection study that I'm supervising um, for frozen shoulders. And she's just putting the finishing touches to what will be a qualitative piece to her PhD as, as well. Um, so I agree with you. There's not enough qualitative patient mm. perspective information 
Mm. Um, I'm sure every day in your clinic, you you have the patient who's crying and mm. desperately trying to understand what's going on and desperately confused that everybody is saying something different and looking on Google and Google saying the best treatment is organic ginger picked at six o'clock in the morning on the west side of a mountain by people pure of heart, you know. So there's there's so much, yeah, well, you know, unsubstantiated stuff and, and I don't think we've got enough about the patient's voice in this. And I'm sure you that's your experience as well. Absolutely. It's the, the Jones study that you mentioned is, is fascinating in that people just want to know what's going on. So they want an accurate diagnosis. Who would have thought, right? That goes back to Louis Gifford's four principles of what, what patients want when they present, present to you. And, they, and often they're just going around from GP to physio to chiro to osteo or whatever, and they've all been telling different things. It's your alignment, it's your posture, it's your bursa, it's the rotator cuff tear, it's this, it's that. It, it flummoxes me as to why frozen shoulder is such a hard diagnosis for, for some clinicians to make. It should be the most obvious presentation that you can see, surely. What, what, what's going on? Are we, too, are we too entrenched in the biomedical model where we're looking at macroscopic structure on ultrasound or we're looking at the tightness of trigger points of tissue and we just, we just lose sight of, a, of an obvious clinical presentation? Why do you think we, we miss, or, or it is common to miss a diagnosis of frozen shoulder? I love the way you reflect and you think. You, you thought carefully a lot, and I really admire that. Um, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. I like the way you're you're pitching this. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I make lots of mistakes. I, someone comes in with a terribly painful shoulder, and my first thought is: is this more likely a you know without the benefit of imaging? Um, is this a, a calcific tendinopathy? You know, the patient's rubbing up and down their upper arm. Is this a is nerve root compression? Um, you know, is this a is this someone who really has pushed themselves beyond their absolute physical limit and and really does have some evidence of bursal shoulder pain, which there is some evidence that that can happen, or is this just um, the person's interpretation of what pain is inside their body and you know, at the same time that they're desperately financially struggling because of the pandemic and the children are not being educated. So, you know, so it's sometimes really complex to say, and I, I make mistakes and, I'm, and I'm, I'm not ever critical of anybody saying, oh, this is a rotated calf or I would be critical if they said this is an impingement, but, but, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but uh, you see, you think this is coffee. Um, anyway, so, um, uh, <laughs> and um and uh you know but but so sometimes it takes a while to declare itself but i agree with you that you know there are there are you never can, everything's a hypothesis in our world you know rotator cuff related shoulder pain is a hypothesis it's likely to be that based on these sets of circumstances from the interview from the clinical examination and that hypothesis may change over time so you know so for me the hypothesis of frozen shoulder is the fact, as I mentioned earlier up, 50 active passive ranges restricted, that one of them has to be external rotation and, and a normal image. And, and 
but then why the shoulder is a frozen shoulder is another huge question mm. in itself. You know, what category of frozen shoulder are they? I don't think we can just stop it. This is a frozen shoulder and it's without any shadow of a doubt, your capsule that's contracted. But, but the overarching theme is this is, if you want to come up with a different term, that's fine. But for today, it's called a frozen shoulder and um, based on those features. So I, it might take some time, but I think you can get there. Mm. For, for me, for me, frozen shoulder, uh, let's, uh, whenever I refer to frozen shoulder, I'm going to refer to, for this question anyway, a true idiopathic capsular contracture somehow we've observed let's just say that we've done a biopsy or we've gone in there for an arthroscopy or whatever that that frozen shoulder is almost the most definitive observation that you can make i think clinically in physiotherapy if you took everybody if you took a hundred people and contracted their capsule they're all going to move within 10 or 20% of each other, I think, in terms of they're going to come in and they're going to have those cardinal signs of how they move their shoulder. Mm-hmm. So this is where I, I think it's slightly different from a rotator cuff related shoulder pain presentation where it could be, it could be any number of structures. Now that's mm-hmm. talking about nociception. It could be any number of psychosocial factors or, or physiological mm-hmm. factors. We'll, we'll never truly know, I don't think, it's just pain in the shoulder. But, but a frozen shoulder has a very clear pathophysiological profile in many cases, and I certainly know that there are some that do not follow that, that we'll talk about in a moment with the, with the pseudo-frozen shoulder with the work from Louise Holman. Mm-hmm. But, but do you agree that a, that a true sort of capsular-type presentation of a frozen shoulder is a, is a pretty definite, once it reveals itself, once it declares itself after those first few months, Mm-hmm. should be an obvious clinical diagnosis. Yeah, and I, I agree with that, with the um, with, with the proviso that how... So, so I, t- I totally agree with everything you just said. How are we determining that the capsule is contracted? So that's my question back to you. How, do you, how would you... So Absolutely, if you yeah. don't have the don't have the advantage of an arthroscope or histology biopsy, how are we making that call? I mean, yes, we can see on MRI, we can see um, on ultrasound, we can see some possible structural changes. Maybe that takes us to that that point. I've certainly been speaking to some interesting. Um, there was a, a, a radiologist I've just been speaking to who's convinced now that for those of people who are familiar with scanning the shoulder, when you put an ultrasound machine on the shoulder, you can clearly see the rotator cuff moving and the deltoid not moving at all when you do this, the scan. And this, this gentleman's been sending me some uh, anecdotal uh, imaging ultrasound videos where in patients with frozen shoulder, he's observed that the rotator cuff and deltoid are almost like glued together and moving together. And he's interested to, to research um, that sign. And I don't know enough about it. I certainly spent yesterday in the clinic with the scanner trying to see if I could see it, and I couldn't. But, but, but I don't know that that could be my poor scanning technique. Yeah. 
but, but you know, so I, 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 I totally agree with you, but we can only do that once we've got the definitive evidence of coracohumeral ligament or some part of the capsule has contracted. Mm. Um, and then I agree, this, it should be the best, most simple, clearest dif- uh, diagnosis in, in the history of diagnosis. So, absolutely. That, that is, that's the thing that, yeah, the, 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 the determination of whether the capsule is involved or not is a huge missing piece. And, and this sort of leads us into, into Louise's work that we just mentioned and her now pretty famous paper, and quite rightly so, which came out a couple of years ago, which put five people, I believe, under anesthesia, general anesthesia, and then and measured their range of motion uh, versus when they were awake. Now diagnosed with a frozen shoulder. And as you know, substantial improvements under anesthesia and the and the and the assertion or the or the or the question is, how do people with a frozen shoulder or a subset of a people with frozen shoulder have an active restriction or a muscle guarding? Can you mm. can you speak to, to this? Do you have a theory uh, around these potential patients or subgroup of patients? Do you see them in your practice? Do you think that they're, they're out there? Um, and if you do, uh, do, you, do you treat them any differently? Mm, great question. I mean, uh, yeah, head off to Louise and head off to Karen Ginn. I mean, you know, t- 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 enormous contribution, Karen Ginn and, and, her, and her PhD in MSc students. And, and, and Louise's study was so profound and so interesting. And yes, it's small, but it needs... Um, it needs to be considered and we need to explore it further. And, and we're certainly doing some research in Illinois in, in the States at the moment, uh, furthering Louise's research um, um, with a couple of colleagues internationally. And um, uh, so, so I don't know how to work out the muscle guarding component. Um, if we go back to your earlier sentence about the true capsular contraction if we look at the research that's available to us it's suggesting that physios can mobilize inferiorly the glenohumeral joint with around about 20 kilograms of i don't know 20 so if you're pushing on a bathroom scale you're doing a jmar thing um it, it's about 20 kilograms that the, the force we're applying is kilograms of force. No, I've got that wrong, but, but, um, but you, you know what I mean? Um, so let, let's even put a whole body weight behind it. Let's say we're, we're mobilizing the inferior capsule at a hundred kilograms. Um, it seems to be that the force required from what professor Ito's work from Japan, we need about 683 kilograms of force to stretch the inferior capsule. From my knowledge, the the, um, the the heaviest deadlift last year was um, 500 kilograms. So the sort of the good news is that the heaviest deadlift is still not. Uh, this you, you know this better than I am. You're, I think I think you're a, a lifter, aren't you? You're a, you're a weightlifter. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell? That's that's 600 kilograms how, of force right there, man. How's your, how's your subscapularis, by the way? Um, <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> What was that that whole region? Um, anyway, so, um, <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I'm far away now. You can't come and punch me. Anyway. Yeah, um, anyway, exactly. So um, um, yeah, so 
you know, the good news is that the heaviest deadlift is still not strong enough to stretch the posterior capsule because if it was, we'd be in a lot of trouble trying to lift a, a heavy weight. Mm-hmm. So, but, and so it would be naive for physios and chiropractors and osteopaths to say, oh, I'm stretching out your inferior capsule with this mobilization procedure. And there certainly is evidence that mobilization has some part to play. There was in a paper we published last year, um, our systematic review that uh, Catherine Minslow led on. Um, and, um, and, uh, but, but it can't be that we're stretching the capsule. Not even someone as immensely strong as you. Um, and, um, and, and so are we really, maybe what we're doing is we're decreasing the muscle guarding. Um, and that's where we're seeing the benefit from exercises and, and stretching and, and, and mobilization procedures. Um, so maybe that's when it does change. Um, maybe that's, um, maybe that's suggestive that part of the problem is muscle guarding. Um, a friend of, a colleague and a friend of mine, Owen O'Connor, uh, back in 2010, uh, we were the first physios. So we put in a grant to a, a brilliant funding source called the Health Foundation in the UK. And the Health Foundation gave us a lot of money to set up a, a hydrodistension clinic led by, run by physios, uh, totally just physios um, uh, in, in community care. And we were, we were the first to do that. And we had some amazing help, Alison Hall, uh, teaching us, a sonographer teaching us how to do the procedures. We put a lot of effort into learning how to do hydrodistension for frozen shoulders because um, we really wanted to offer a one-stop shop. And, and we, we try to keep it as, um, uh, as accurate as possible. So if I did the injection, Owen would uh, reassess the patients. And, and if I heated an injection, I'd re- reassess so that we were not, not trying to bias our own findings. And, um, and what we could never understand um, is that sometimes you know, you've got an ultrasound machine, the needle's in, you're putting in 30 mils of saline, so you know you're not up against the bone. And sometimes the injection would go so smoothly and you see this expansion of, um, of the humeral head and the glenoid fossa, and sometimes you just, your arm would end up looking like the Hulk because you just could not get any saline out of the, out of the needle, out of the mm-hmm. syringe. And, and we, we just couldn't understand it. We talked a lot about it. And, and I wonder, because if you sort of think about it, if it does require 680 kilograms of force to stretch the capsule, what could 30 mils of saline do against that? You know, you couldn't. I don't think I could generate enough force. I don't, I don't know. And when it's easy, maybe what we were seeing were muscle guarding as the, the reason for the clinical presentation of the frozen shoulder. I, I don't do hydro distinctions anymore. I've stopped doing that for many years now. But... Um, but I know a lot of people do it and a lot of people talk about the success of doing it. Um, but, you know, this, this, we're going to leave this conversation knowing less than we started at the beginning of it. We, you know, it's such a hugely interesting topic that we know so little, I know so little about, you know, mm. that we're trying to learn about it, but it's complex. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Um, so, okay, I think that's, this sort of leads quite nicely into an injection question. So I think the three obvious candidates would be just a low volume intra-articular injection. You've got your high volume and then even the old subacromial injection, which is still done. And mm. it doesn't make logical sense to me, but the data suggests it's not heaps worse than an intra-articular injection as far as I can see. It's at the end anyway, maybe it lags behind uh, initially. So 
you've, it seems like you've retired your your hydrodilatation or hydro distension injection, which is interesting. They're becoming more and more popular here um, down under. I know they're very common in the UK. I worked over in London for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. lots of the consultants love to do a hydro distension procedure. What's what's your experience? Firstly, what's the rationale behind an injection from a pathophysiological perspective and then how do you find they go anecdotally of course and you can make reference to the literature if you like okay uh, well this is a phd this question um uh it's a lovely fabulous question um how much time do we have um, um <laughs> 10 minutes to go jeremy okay cool i'll get it done with two um so um so this is this is just a conversation between me and you. No one else is going to hear this. That's Nobody right. else. Okay. Thousands of people. Um, so, um, so we know that um, lidocaine and steroid can reduce fibroblast populations. Um, Vicky Ryan and Hazel Brown, for their masters um, that I contributed to did a really interesting systematic review in 2016 in BMC MSK, open access, if anyone wants to read it, uh, look, trying to look at the uh, pathophysiology, the histology of frozen shoulders. And what was really interesting, we could not find one naive study, meaning that we couldn't find any study that had the, the, the tissues that when they were being sampled um, had had no intervention, no injection, no physios. So there's not, we don't know what's really going on at a pathological level in a naive frozen shoulder. And so we, we made our cutoff. The, the, I think the only thing they, the, the subjects, the participants could have had was um, non-steroidals, which still has a chance to influence um, tissue. Uh, one of the things that they reported was that in the coracohumeral ligament and in parts of the inferior capsule, my memory serves me well, that there are, fibroblasts in those areas of the capsule and they are myofibroblasts and myofibroblasts um, uh, can cause contraction and maybe that's where the contraction that you were talking about before comes from now if injections uh, can if that combination of of lidocaine and or steroid can reduce myofibroblast populations in other studies i wonder if one of the reasons why injections work is that it is reducing myofibroblast populations um, and it is then stopping the progression of the contraction because the injections from my clinical experience, but also the paper we published, the systematic review published last year in um, Journal of Rehabilitation Medicine um, suggested that injections work best in the painful stage they don't seem to work in the stiff phase and the earlier the better so i wonder so of course it could be having an effect on inflammation which we still don't really understand um, the injections might be diluting chemicals um, in the in the joint um, it could be contextual if it's muscle guarding who know who knows anything really but at a physiological level which i'm really interested in is it possible that if it is a true frozen shoulder and there are myofibroblasts causing the contraction and this medicine can reduce the number of fibroblasts 
Is it restoring homeostasis in the region? Why that? I don't, I don't know. This is, you know, um, I'm sure it'll be shot down by someone, but I'm saying it before and the end of this, I don't know its hypothesis. So, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to explore. Um, what I see clinically and what I do clinically now is uh, as long as the patient understands the risk, because there are risks of injection, it's not that it's a risk-free procedure. Um, uh, and as long as they consent to all the things I want them to do afterwards, I actually do two injections on the same day. I'll do an injection inside the joint and I'll do an injection in the bursa. And it was interesting in 1850s, Duplay, the first person to really talk about frozen shoulders was suggesting that the cause of the frozen shoulder was bursal stickiness. So he had a, like a, an adhesive theory as well, but it was the bursa, subacromial bursa sticking together and that was causing the pain because you just couldn't move and it was causing restricted movement. Um, and, and it does, and I agree with you, there's not a huge difference where you do the injection. So is it contextual? Who knows what's going on? But I think the evidence suggests that an intra-articular injection slightly wins that, that competition. A bursal injection by itself slightly loses that competition. But when you add the bursal injection to the glenohumeral injection, it seems to improve hand behind back range more than just the intra-articular injection. Now, why that's the case, I don't know. We're, we're currently setting up an RCT to look at that. Um, uh, but, you know, what, what the bursa contribution is, I, I don't know. Maybe it's mm. turning off pain a bit. I, I, don't, I don't know. Mm. Oh, that's a fascinating hypothesis in regards to lidocaine and, and steroid inhibiting or reducing fibroblasts or myofibroblasts that's that completely sort of goes in the face of a hydrodilatation injection trying to distend these mechanical things that we're obsessed with in physio right but perhaps something is going on at a deeper physiological and certainly psychological level i know from my experience if i have someone who has had a hydrodilatation injection mm. and they they uh, it makes it's, it makes sense. It's coherent to them. If they go and have an injection and it's going to blow up their capsule, it's going to dilate their capsule. And I'm sure there is some contextual effects to having a hydrodilatation injection. And plus they hurt a bit as well. So I think they can, and sometimes they pop and they hear a rupture or they, they can hear that popping sound. And so they come in and those people who say it, they're like, oh, it's so much freer now. And the radiologist said, it's great. It popped. So that's another, that, that, that's an interesting, actually, let me ask you that. Do you think a hydrodilatation injection can rupture a capsule? Can, can given what we know about the force that's needed mm. to, to do it, that, that was the theory that a hydrodilatation would cause a rupture of the capsule. Does it, is it plausible? Mm. I, I, I guess it's plausible. Mm. I guess if it takes 683, you know, kilograms of, force per centimetre squared to mm. stretch the capsule hard you know I can't imagine if you had an injection you know what's a, a, a half a Volkswagen Golf I don't know if that weighs half, 600 kilograms but whatever you know um, if you, you couldn't imagine putting 30 mils of fluid behind a Volkswagen mm. Polar I'm not trying to advertise Volkswagen um, um, this was brought to you by every car manufacturer <laughs> Um, uh, you know, I can't imagine 30 mils of fluid could actually move that car. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine it. You know, a little bit of 
but maybe in a confined area it can, certainly had situations where I have seen the fluid go in, a noise happened, and then the fluid dissipated. Um, so I assume something has ruptured. I don't really, not 100% sure what. But my question was, and Owen and I had this conversation, you know, is it acceptable to cause a rupture and then let steroid flow who knows where are we causing any problems because the way you so the way some people do the injection is it's um, lidocaine and saline some people do the injection um, lidocaine first and saline some people mix saline lidocaine and steroid and is it acceptable to have these things free flowing somewhere does that cause any atrogenic problems and, and i don't didn't, couldn't find an answer to that so mm. there was a whole lot of reasons why i decided that it didn't make sense for me to do hydrodistension i'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this or not listening to this who do hydrodistensions have very valid sound reasons for doing it but i'm not convinced by the research on hydrodistension it certainly wasn't included in our recent paper. Um, it's certainly not included in the UK Frost trial. Um, so I'm not sure we've got definitive evidence for um, for distensions. And, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's as good as I can no, get, I think. It's good. It's good. So I think we'll, I'll, I'll ask one more question. And you just, you just reminded me of the Frost trial. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. Um, Interesting result. So, so three group, three group RCT, physio, standardized physio. It was after an injection, I believe, to start with, uh, versus a manipulation under anaesthetic versus a arthroscopic capsular release. Yeah, seems to be no no superiority of one over the other after twelve months. I believe there were some sort of so physio needed more treatment. I think mm. uh, manipulation under anaesthetic perhaps the most cost-effective, which was a fascinating outcome. Yeah, it to me. completely blew me. When I read that, I thought, yeah. well, that's, that's really challenged everything. I, every surgeon I've ever attended a lecture on talking about it says manipulation under anaesthetic really rough, damaged the shoulder, ripped the labrum, caused fractures, caused hemarthrosis much more sophisticated, much more finesse to do a capture release. So I've sort of been towing the party line when patients are saying, listen, what you're doing is not helping. What else can we discuss? So I've been saying for a long time, oh, capture release is the way to go because that was it had become part of my DNA, uh, basically listening to, you know, surgeons' experiences. And so the FROST trial really um, has challenged that, you know, and... Rightly, rightly so. To say huge credit to the the researchers and the participants who participated contributed to that knowledge. Um, I guess for me, it sort of still does reinforce: do the injections and do physio after the injections, and then if it's not making declaring itself, and the, and the individual is looking for some other way forward, um, and understands the risks and benefits, go and do a manipulation under an aesthetic. I presume that should be the care pathway now. Uh, conversation that's that's been happening, as you're aware of on social media, is should have there been a fourth group, you know, the um, advice, education, and wait and watch, which would have been really valuable. I'm not for a minute criticising the Frost study 
but you know, at, at some stage in the future, it'd be really valuable to have that comparative arm as well. Um, Cause maybe it's just time. Um, it doesn't really yeah. matter what you throw at the patient. Yeah, absolutely agree. I, th I think it's an interesting outcome um, because I, I've, I've never, so I'm, I've been out of, I've been practicing for about 10 years and I've never, I don't think I've seen a frozen shoulder after a manipulation under anesthetic in the past decade. I've certainly not, I've, I've sort of sat in and watched a few arthroscopic releases and I work with some surgeons here and they do well post-operatively, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's going to, it, it must inform practice and in a, in a manipulation under anesthetic. I don't know how, how much we should extrapolate. I didn't go in and have a look at, at the, at the patients who did it anyway. I don't know how, if we can just extrapolate it across the board to every country, to every, every patient demographic, but it's interesting. Nonetheless, we should be thinking about a manipulation under anesthetic, which for me is, it seems like a barbaric procedure, as you alluded to. It seems like it's, it's contrary to sort of everything that I believed in. So it's really going to make me look at my own clinical practice as well. It's interesting. I guess that's the value of research and acquisition of knowledge, mm. you know, not being stuck in one place and mm. testing hypotheses, trying, and what, what, what are we all trying to do? We're all trying to make the, the lives of people coming in seeking care as better as possible. And I know there's huge debates, especially in social media about how dare you do this and why would you do that? But the truth is we're all just trying to, you know make our little corners of the world the best possible and try to help people as much as as we can and you know certainly my experience of, of the privilege of teaching around the world has been that physios are really nice people they're really trying to make a difference and trying to learn and trying to work out what works and um and, and yeah so i guess what we're all trying to do is just add to our knowledge and add to our ability to help people i'm certainly a different person today than when i finished minute therapy in in mm. melbourne you know and yeah is that reminds me of a, of a quote another quote uh from carl popper who i've been reading his book recently and he's like all knowledge is temporary um provisional and capable of being refuted at any point so don't hold your beliefs too tightly yeah. or too closely and it, they sort of that rings home with that frost trial as well we've got to be adaptable and go where the evidence takes us and you know, there's not enough of that, I don't think. We're just seems like I don't know, maybe we're just in these silos, but we're just getting more polarized by the day, both in physio and politically all around the world as well. And and, and you, you mentioned Louis Gifford before, and I, I remember I mean just finish on, on this because I we've got to all sit down and pray for New South Wales to win tonight. Um and um as he the screen goes blank. Um <laughs> I don't really I'm not really invested either way. I I did a five day course with um with Louis Gifford and David Butler, I was a student in a five-day course, and it was at the beginning of um, it was in Abergavenny in Wales, and I flew across to participate in it. I really wanted to participate in it. It was an amazing course, and it was sort of the time where they were really challenging mechanical, you know, mechanical mm -hmm. ideas and talking about more about pain. And you know, I didn't even realize it was a brain before I did this course. I didn't know that thing existed, and you know, and um, and and Louis was just so eloquent and and clever and, and a philosopher and knowledgeable and he was talking about pain the whole time and you know how, how we have to reframe reconceptualize and then the last day or the last two days they had patients and this 
first patient came in, um, and this is after four days of just solidly no, no hands-on, think about different ways of think, you know, working with patients. It was revolutionary. And, um, and the first patient came in, so I got a really sore neck and, and what's happened? And Louis asked him, you know, what's, what's been beneficial in the past? And he said, oh, I've had these manipulations and it's always helped me for years. So without any thought, Louis put him in supine, manipulated his neck and the guy said, thank you. And, this, and we were all looking at each other, you know, and then when we were sort of saying, why Louis? You know, we just, just learned about the brain and there's this thing called pain that no one ever heard of before. Um, and he said, because that's the, you know, in terms of conceptualization, why would have I have done anything else for this patient? Yeah. And it was really, really interesting and insightful and really mature, I thought, you know, that he was listening to patients and yeah. not just listening to ourselves as health professionals. It was really, yeah. Anyway. Being, um, being intellectually humble and yeah. not putting your own biases onto your patients is, is such a golden rule. So. Thank you for sharing that story. That's amazing. That's a good place to finish. Thank you, Jeremy, for, for joining me for the past hour or so. Um, you've got so much knowledge, mate, and I really appreciate you taking the time early over there in London to, to speak to me and to, and to everyone who watches this. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation and, and come on, Queensland. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Jeremy Lewis. In the time that has elapsed since November 2020, when we originally recorded this conversation, the content discussed is still accurate and up to date. The evidence base has not really changed. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show out. Thanks very much for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.